Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, your co-host. My partner, Jennifer Kalari, will be along shortly. And this is the show where we talk about mental health and we practice resilience skills. We practice mental health skills because mental health is a practice. There's a lot of talk about it. There's not a lot of doing. There is a lot of talk, and that's good. But uh, notice how my voice, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of up and down roller coastering of the tone of voice now. I also have bronchitis, so bear with me. There may be coughing that where the roof of the house goes up and then comes down like a cartoon. That's how much I've been coughing, but not right now. So grateful for that. On today's show, this is really interesting. Sometimes you hear a story about people and it's just, it's absolutely fascinating to me. We have a guest who, unfortunately, went through quite a trauma and a tragedy. His son committed suicide at age 19. The way he dealt with the grief was through psychedelics. And he wrote a book called The Grief Trip. And he has a podcast called Consciousness Podcast and also the Stoned Ape Podcast, where he talks all about psychedelics, the healing power of psychedelics, and how it allows you to heal from all kinds of trauma and even enhance your life. And so I wanted to talk to him about that. And that's Stuart Preston. Stuart Preston coming up very shortly. I wanted to just tell you that we have a big sponsor for today's show. We're bringing this back. Today's sponsor is Moodament, which is the first antidepressant mouthwash. It's available in Spearmint, Peppermint, and New Root and Toot and Wellbutrin. If your mood elevator doesn't go to all the way to the top, Moodament will give you the lift you need with the freshness you deserve. Moodament. I guess today's show is going to be about loss. If you're, you need to pull your car over and just park for a few days, that's fine. We're going to talk about that. I don't know how much comedy there is in loss. There's comedy in everything. and I don't know how much comedy we're going to have today on the show, but the way I experienced loss in my life was going to the cemetery with my mother every Saturday or Sunday. We would have a, almost a routine because in the Jewish tradition, you don't pay a lot of attention to the living. You do pay a lot of attention to what's come before you and what has passed. I'm not making a blanket statement. That's just how I experienced it when I was a kid growing up. So I would go with my mom off to the cemetery every Sunday or Saturday and there was a big cemetery, a Jewish cemetery, where you always got lost. You couldn't find the people, the graves, because they're all in the ground. If you go to a Jewish cemetery, they're all like plaques in the ground. They're not headstones. I would go with my mom, and it would be snowing sideways during the month of February in Boston. And my mother was the kind of person who would make a speech to the person, but like conversational. So she'd just start talking to, to graves. She'd be like, you're not going to believe how wonderful the sun is today. It's beautiful sun, Jack. And I tell you, I really miss you. But, you know, your daughter is so wonderful. And she would start talking. And I realized she was always talking to the wrong grave. She had a bad sense of direction. And I would say, Mom, she's over there. But I think she heard you from where you are. And I would say that. And so you have this image of a little kid with a jacket that, you know, this big Mighty Mac jacket. And watching his mother relate to the dead uh, and, and keep them very much alive in being conversational. So today, a little bit about loss, a little bit about grief. 
I want to bring in my partner, the high priestess of hippocampus, the overlord of oxytocin, and the sultan of serotonin, Jennifer Kalari. <laughs> when you bring up grief, it's kind of a misunderstood thing about how this works. Mm-hmm. We've come off a lot of grief in the pandemic. Is there a way? I mean, when somebody comes to you and they're grieving, what do you tell them? Well, listen, grief is is a really intense emotion and you can't have it without having love. It's sort of love inside out. It's also an emotion that really needs to be felt and it will make you feel it. You can't not feel it. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend not to feel it. You can't drink it away. Like it's it's very very much an all-encompassing emotion. And you need to really honor it and let it run its course. It ne- you need to feel it at the pace that you need to feel it. You can't go under it, over it, or around it. You have to go through it. How do you stay with it and stay in it as opposed to try to recover from it? Grief is a, a very, very intense emotion, but we're like this with a lot of our what we call so-called emotional negative emotions. But certainly rituals help family support. You know, the brain is amazing. It, it won't let you stay in, in a deep kind of traumatic grief period for too long without lifting you back up. Like if you, if you ever watched at a funeral or a shiva, like people are sad and there's intense waves of incredible sadness. And then you start to talk about the food or you chuckle about something funny that the person that you're honoring did. And suddenly there's laughter and your, your body kind of goes in these waves Sometimes they're in 20 to 40 minute cycles. Sometimes they're longer. And you just kind of part of it when you're in the grief is to just know that there's this wave component to it where it hits you really hard right in the gut and pulls you right back down. And that's where you just have to be in it. And you literally, you know, kind of put your hand over your heart and just be like, oh, this is grief. This is how it feels. I can't fight it. I can't, I don't want to fight it. I just need to be in it. And then know that it will lift and then it will drop down again. And just knowing that there's cycles to it. I mean, one of the hardest parts, and maybe our guests can speak to this too, is people try to be helpful. They try to be helpful, but they say the worst things, like things that are just, no, don't say that. That does not help at all. I mean, it's coming from a place of wanting to make the person feel better, but so often it just makes the person who's feeling the grief feel worse. The best thing you can do with someone who's feeling grief is to just be present. You're not going to say anything. There are no words. No words can fix when you've lost a child or a parent or witnessed something traumatic. Like there's no words for that. There's just human presence. There's just making space for it and holding somebody and holding their hand and looking in their eyes or just being quietly there. There's no, there's nothing magical that you can do other than that. Uh, When my mom passed away, I had a therapist who gave me this technique because my fear was that I was going to feel so much that I wouldn't be able to function. Mm -hmm. There's a call from my mom right now. (laughs) She's calling from beyond and her message is very simple. Stop talking about the death. Live your life. Um, That's what she, do you have any sweet and low by any chance? Yeah, she was funny as hell. The therapist said what you need to do to realize that your feelings aren't going to go on forever and you actually can function is you take out all your pictures, you take out everything that reminds you of your mom. This is shortly after she passed. Mm -hmm. And you put them like you have like a little little shrine and you have them then, and then on the shrine is an alarm clock. And after 10 minutes, the alarm goes off. And when the alarm goes off, you put everything away and you go to work. Mm -hmm. 
And so that actually helped me to realize that, yes, I can function and I can still make room for the emotions and I can do yes. it at other times. People need that. They do. They need permission to do that. And they need to do that. And they need to know that that feeling of thinking, I'm never going to recover from this. I'm never going, this grief is just so heavy. I'm never going to see the other side of it. And you do, and you will. And it, and the, there is only one thing that ever helps and that's time. Yeah. Well, and, and is there, you mentioned the, the, you know, putting your hand over your heart and just mm -hmm. acknowledging it, just saying, this is grief. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. Yeah. And you can't have that without having a tremendous amount of love in order to feel that loss. Everything is polarized, right? It's all duality. So it's, it's, this is grief, and I feel this way because I love the person so much. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Well, that's a good, that's a good mantra, and probably a good mantra for, for everything, for other things, too, mm -hmm. but especially for grief. Now I want to bring in I want to bring in our guest. I'm going to bring in our guest, and I'll tell you when I heard about this man, I I was just instantly fascinated by this because I've talked to other people about psychedelics and psilocybin, all these kinds of things, and the idea that that it will be a kind of therapy, it will work with therapy to open up neural pathways, open up people's minds, give them exposure to the gifts of the mind, the perspective. And I don't know how to make it relevant to everyday life. That's the thing. It seems like a very extreme experience. But our guest had a, a very difficult, uh, an impossible thing happen, and that's his 19-year-old son committed suicide. What happened is that he went to psychedelics as a means of healing. We're going to find out all about that and more. And he has a few podcasts, the Consciousness Podcast, he has the Stoned Ape podcast. It's all about consciousness and psychedelics and their use and talking to different experts in the field. And there are many of them doing scientific work on this now. And he's none other than Stuart Preston. And Stuart, first of all, welcome. Happy to have you here. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jennifer. Good to be here, I guess, if you can say that. Can you just, just tell us how is it that you found... Uh, psychedelics, and I'm very sorry to hear about your son. Where are you with this, and how'd you get into this world of psychedelics? It was by chance. You know, a lot of uh, psychonauts will say that uh, the, the psychedelics, the medicines, find you, mm -hmm. and so it's possible that that is what happened, but I had grown up having never tried any drugs at all. Um, I mean, except for, you know, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, just the worst ones. <laughs> My dad was DEA, so I thought people who did drugs were bad and the drugs themselves were bad, and so I never even tried it. And if somebody tried it around me, I would just get on their case and say, you got to stop doing that. But then when Ian when Ian died by suicide, which, by the way, is how, how we're saying it, it died by suicide, because mm -hmm. the word committed often attaches mm -hmm. a stigma you know, to mm -hmm. that. But when Ian died by suicide... You know, obviously, it just uh, rattled my whole life. The The person I was at that moment is gone. You know, as soon as that police officer told me that Ian was gone, you know, mm -hmm. everything in my life changed instantly. I was no longer that, that man. But mm -hmm. at some point, I read an article or a blog that said that LSD and magic mushrooms, which are very similar in the experience, um, that they can put one into a dreamlike state. And so I thought, well, I have pretty in-depth 
amazing dreams. Maybe I'll try this and I can just be with Ian. And mm-hmm. I thought that's, you know, that's not being with Ian, but that's better than not having him. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go ahead and do this. I did all my research, prepared myself, prepared my medicine and took my first journey with magic mushrooms with psilocybin fell down the proverbial rabbit hole at that point. Can you describe what that is? Uh, the rabbit hole and, and listen, people are listening to this. There, there's been work that's been done on this for many years since Timothy Leary and before. Can you explain the experience to people? It's, it's kind of, I mean, imagine it's pretty challenging for anybody who doesn't have a frame of reference for this. Yeah. And it, it's important also to point out, I am not recommending anybody does this. If it's illegal where you are, don't do it. Do your research. Uh, harm reduction is a very big component of this. So make sure and do you know a background check on your family's psychiatric history. Make sure that there's no contraindications for any medicines, you know, pharmaceutical medicines you may be taking. And and again, I don't I don't I don't should on people when it comes to psychedelics. I don't say everybody should do this and this is the answer to everything. So don't don't listen to this and think, okay, I'm I'm sad, I'm filled with grief. Yeah, don't run out and, and eat a bag of mushrooms and think it's, this is going to solve your problems. So don't go yeah. to an ayahuasca ceremony and think it's, it's going to solve your problems. Yeah. But a, a typical, you know, my first experience with, with mushrooms, a lot of research, you know, reading about Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary and the damage that they did to psychedelics back in the 60s. Richard Alpert ended up becoming Ram Dass, who became, you know, essentially one of my teachers in life, ironically, coincidentally. Yeah, the experience, you know, Getting down your set and setting, make sure your mindset is right, which doesn't mean happy. It just means that you're prepared, you're ready. You've been dieting, meditating, maybe fasted beforehand. The setting means, you know, depending on where you are, everything's cleaned up. You've got things that are meaningful to you around you. You know, there's nothing rotting in the fridge. You know, everything is is uh, nice and clean and ready to go. Some decorations, maybe you have some music prepared. And you have a good set and setting, then you can you can take, you know, the medicines, the drugs. You know, the same things happen, I think, with almost everybody the first time. The, the first time, you, first thing you think is that it's not working mm-hmm. because you expect to swallow it and then be launched into space. And it takes time for it to come on, as we say, and to come up. And so first thing people think is, oh, no, this is, isn't working. And then it starts to work. And I found myself afraid. You know, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Am I going to break my brain? Am I going to never come down from this? Am I going to go crazy? There's a little bit of anxiety that comes along with that first experience and other and follow on experiences that doesn't necessarily go away. So it's just, you, you deal with that, you know, and you let it pass through and you realize, okay, I've done my research. I know how this works. This, I've heard people describe this before, let it go through. And then you go through, there's two or three or four peaks in the beginning where the, the medicines or the, you know, the psychedelics hand you your lessons that you're going to learn. And then you've got a long come down. And during that come down, while the medicine starts to wear off, you're very insightful, very creative, very introspective. And so you can kind of learn to play on some of the lessons that you got while under the influence. And, you know, some people create art, listen to music, watch a certain movie, you know, whatever it is. And when the whole thing's done, you just have to take those lessons and just like you would with therapy, integrate them, make them a part of your life. So that, you know, you don't just have an experience and, and then slam the door on it and go off and be the same. You take the lessons and make them part of, of your everyday life so you can learn and grow from it. Now, you're not doing this alone, right? You have a guide. You have somebody there with you. You don't do this alone. You don't ever want to do it alone alone. You want to have a trip sitter nearby. 
So you've got two options, and I can tell what you're thinking and by your leading questions. There, there is the, the therapeutic model of doing this, which is very hard to access. You can't just go down the street and find yourself a psychedelic therapist. There are underground therapists. They're very secretive because they can lose their licenses, which they work so hard for. So there, there are some studies at universities like John Hopkins where you can get, become part of a program and get some therapy. But for the average person out there to go and get therapy and sit with a therapy, a therapist during this is, is very hard, very hard to access. Mm -hmm. So most people are doing this on their own. And that's why it's just important that substances are tested with testing kits, that the, all the work has been done ahead of time, you know, the set and the setting and the understanding, understanding your, uh, your medicine, the dosage and everything that's going on and having a sitter, having somebody that at the very least is nearby who can come if you call for them. Or also you can find people in your area that will do what we call trip sitting that will sit with you during the experience and some of them will create an experience. They'll play music throughout it because they'll keep an eye on where you are in the whole curve of the, the come up, the peaks and the come down. And some of them will just sit there in the room with you, allow you to have your experience and just make sure that if you start to panic or have a, a bad experience that they're there to not interfere. You don't want somebody to jump in and start messing with your, your experience, but just to help you understand that, you know, everything's going to be fine. And, and that's really uncommon for somebody to have a bad trip. It usually means they took a large, very large dose, or they didn't do their set and setting preparations. But even then you can have somebody that can, that can talk you down from a bad experience. And then in the end, you find out your bad experience actually wasn't bad. It was maybe very scary, but it still brought you uh, very valuable lessons, just like a, an ordinary experience. Mm -hmm. And, and how long is this experience? Is it two hours? Is it two days? So a mushroom experience will be about six to eight hours. LSD, which at my age, I can't afford to spend 12 to 15 hours in this state, but it takes 12 to 15 hours. There is DMT that people smoke. DMT is, a, is, a, is found in plants, it's found in toads, and that can be a 15-minute experience. So it really depends on, the, on the, the substance. And ayahuasca? You know, it's hard for me to tell just based, because time goes away and you're no longer in a normal time space with ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. So I never sit there and think, oh, wow, it's probably been a couple hours. I sit there like, I don't even know what time it is. Don't even ask me. Yeah. That's probably, and you do multiple doses with, with ayahuasca. Most of these, you take your one dose, you know, you're on your experience for six to 15 hours. With ayahuasca, you're taking two or three or four doses of it over the night. And so you might start in an evening around eight o'clock and then the whole thing, you'll, you'll really be done by two, three or four in the morning. So I guess, I guess with multiple doses, you're looking at maybe, you know, four to six hours. But now you went in with a certain intention and you're mm -hmm. saying that most people who do this, they study, they have an intention going in. They have an intention, they have an idea. Mm -hmm. And then they're given some lessons, life lessons or things to work on or things to work out. Mm -hmm. You went in with a particular idea, a particular intention. What happened? Well, and the, the irony of that is I don't do intentions anymore because the, the irony with this, you go into this with an intention and all you're doing is giving the medicine a great big laugh. You know, <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's what you think you need to work on. I heard Jennifer make a noise. So I think therapists <laughs> deal with this too. Like, like somebody yeah. will come into the office and go, hey, doc, I got to work on this. And, the, and you know, it's like, okay, so tell me about this and this. And then something completely different comes up and the therapist knows, okay, 
I knew we weren't going to work on the thing this person said they were going to work on. And the medicines do the same thing. You're like, I want to learn to forgive myself. I want to see my son, you know, whatever it is. And then the medicine just laughs and says, that's fine, but we've got plenty of layers of this onion to peel before we can get close to what you think you need to work on. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll get those lessons. And then, you know, so that I don't do intentions anymore. Somebody very wise taught me going into these, these ceremonies or these journeys to just say to myself, I don't know what is going to come of this. Cause that I don't know literally cleared my mind of any expectations like an intention would do is create expectations. Mm -hmm. And so it created a nice slick, clear runway for me to go into the experience. And since I've started doing that, I have been getting much better, deeper, helpful experiences from the, from the psychedelics. Yeah. Cause it's about control. It's about letting go. Right. I, I would yeah. love, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, Ed, but I would love to hear what happened in that first experience for you. What was that like? It was amazing. It started off. So I, my set and setting, I was alone except for my trip sitter. He was nearby, but not, not there to influence me at all mm-hmm. on a giant plush pillow. I'm a morning person. So this started at four 30 in the morning. I had eye shades on and I had plugs in my ears. As soon as the medicine started to come on, I started to see visuals. Mm-hmm. My ears started to echo because the blood pounding in my ears. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that came on, I just started crying. And I was it just tears like a faucet running down my face. And I just thought, wow, this is what everybody's talking about. It's like this whole other reality. Mm-hmm. that, you know, outside of it, you think back in the old days, I would have, you know, a friend of mine took acid, talked about dinosaurs. And I looked at, I looked down on him. I judged him, you know, I was like, oh, you're, cause you're a druggie, you know, mm-hmm. that's why. And so there's a lot of stigma around it, but when you're inside of it, you suddenly realize, the, you know, the levels of consciousness or reality that it gives you access to. And so I ended up, I cried. I don't know if it was sad, cry, happy, cry. I ended up laughing. And everything cry. Yeah. Yeah. It was just yeah. a cathartic cry. Mm-hmm. Then I started laughing, giggling, you know, almost uncontrollably, but the, the tears continued through the laughing part of it. And then I got a bunch of messages. Some, and, and this one wasn't like the deepest level of messages, but you know, some of the most common ones I also got, which is that we're all connected. Mm-hmm. We're all connected together. You know, the Beatles had it right. Love is all you need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you know, some, some silly things, you know, I got a message that it's all about sausage and peppers and <laughs> which means it's not about glass and plastic and electronics and metal, you know, that we mm-hmm. surround ourselves with. Those were really the things that, that I got out of it. And I think the connectedness part of it, the cathartic crying really kind of reestablished my emotional foundation, which allowed me to, to continue to do some more work and to get some deeper lessons. This was like the peeling the onion. This was just getting the skin off the onion, I think. Mm-hmm. But because it was my first experience, you know, just like losing your virginity, you're just like, oh my God, wow. You know, hopefully that's what you had. If you didn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you have this ex- amazing experience and little things, you know, some people laugh at this. Some people think this is a legitimate thing. I never in my life could understand or appreciate or enjoy Pink Floyd. I just, I never got it. People would listen to it. And I was like, it sounds like they're trying to do a play on rock instruments. It doesn't make any sense. And then now it's like some of my favorite music, you know, Hmm. and I, and I love it. I love when people cover their songs. And so 
little things changed, you know, my connectedness to everybody and the openness and coming from a guy who is kind of conservative, judgmental, it really started to break, break that down so that I was able to be more open-minded and open-hearted to a lot of the other things that were going to be coming along the path. So is this something you can refer to in your everyday life? In other words, do you, do you go back to these experiences and say, well, I have this template and I know what I know where I can go and I can you you know I can use this for the I, I remember the lessons that I needed to learn. And then the other question is, did how did this relate to dealing with the grief of losing your son? Yeah, so that's where the integration part comes in, is taking the lessons and, and practicing them. So like in the beginning before we started recording, you said, So what do you do? You know, my answer to that without trying to sound too woo-woo is that I practice. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I practice writing blogs and I practice meditating and I practice music and I practice comedy and, you know, I practice just being, you know, which is really my, my thing now, you know, integrating these lessons. So I learned that I am not hopeless. I'm not helpless. I learned that I was suicidal myself. I learned uh, that we're all connected. I have twice left my body and kind of experienced my my pure consciousness my soul whatever you want to call it and observed this physical realm from a different realm and so you take all those and i can either say that was cool and walk away from it or i can just practice and so when i practice these things by some of them like the suicidal feeling that you know realizing that because when you're inside of depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts it feels like it's real, like that's mm-hmm. your reality, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's hard to, I even did it with my son because I was in that same type of thinking. I didn't recognize it in him. I just thought this is real. This, you know, this is just life. Everybody must feel this way because this is all I've really ever known, Yeah, you know, is being sad and hating myself and thinking that life just sucks. When the mushrooms cracked that container open and dumped it out in front of me, I was like, holy crap. You know what I mean? It's like, that is not normal. This is something that I'm feeling and I'm, I'm acting on and is influencing my whole life. That was like, and I've been through major therapy. So I'm a big believer in therapy. So I'll never mm-hmm. sit here and say, don't do therapy, you know, cause mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in it. I had experiences like that with therapy, that things would get cracked open. And I would, I, my therapist would look at me like, you know, that's not right. Right. You know, that's not real. And that's not how everybody thinks. And I'd be like, well, I was pretty sure that's how everybody thought. Hmm. That's what the mushrooms did. They would crack it open and I would get to look at it. And it could be one experience like that, that I didn't even have to really do much practice with. It just gave me the lesson. And I was like, oh, so that has changed. And that has changed in my life. It can be something that, yeah, when seeing the connectedness of all, all of us together and having what I consider to be um, an inside view or a better understanding of that connectedness mm-hmm. helps me with everything. I mean, it's going to sound trite, but driving down the road, I think people within a five mile radius of me all knew me because of my road rage, you know, and now I just go with the flow. You know, I drove nine and a half hours to New Mexico to do a a meditation hermitage and I just flowed the whole way and I didn't even feel like I was in the car more than a couple of minutes. Wow. So you don't really get mad at anybody. In fact, I was listening to you guys on my way home from that. And so on the way home from that, I'm listening to you guys, big accident. And it was, I'm stuck on the 40 you know, at a standstill when I'm supposed to be going 75 miles an hour. In the past, I would have been losing my mind. I would have been like, how do I get out of my car and carry it, you know, through this? Because I can't sit (laughs) here and do this. Yeah. 
but now it's just like, Hey, we're all in this together. You know what I mean? This is, we're all connected. And, and so, yeah, these lessons as, as long as, so I don't refer to the actual trip itself because it can be very, um, esoteric. It can be, you know, very abstract in the lesson. So I don't necessarily dial into the actual experience, but the lesson that I get from it, um, Ed, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, I do reconnect with that and, and try to live it. And that, just that idea that we are all connected, not just as people, but as a planet, plants, animals, all of us, right. that kind of thinking is actually going to be what saves us all. Right. Yes. And the truth is, if you can literally walk around and think of everyone as your other self, I know it sounds crazy, but just that simple um, shift of thinking as, of everyone as, a, as another version of all of us, of the self, it helps you not get so angry and it gives you meaning and purpose. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. It's uh, you look at another being and that's, you know, from, from the, the spiritual path that I took, which I don't push on people, right? It's one of my favorite sayings is the mountain has one peak, but many paths up it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I don't you can't make someone do that. They have to, yeah. they have to figure that out on their own. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to sit here and pour Ram Dass on people. You know what I mean? And say, this is what you have to study. But, you know, part of what I studied, continue to study is that we are all basically one. So mm-hmm. when you are looking at somebody else, you're like, yeah, that is me. I am, I am that person. That person is me. We're all one together. So it does make it, like you said, Jennifer, it makes it hard to, to really be angry at somebody because you're, you're doing it to yourself. That's right. And what's so interesting is quantum physics is now showing this. Every ancient religion and text has been mm-hmm. saying this for thousands of years. We keep hearing the same all message there. multiple different ways. I think a lot of mental health issues and struggles is, is having that, that's been pinched off somehow. Yeah. That loneliness and that pain comes from knowing that you are more connected, but can't and should be, but didn't know you should be. And I call it cosmic homesickness, right? It's Mm. just, you just know something's not right. You just don't know how to get your way back. And the other piece I think is so important when you were talking about driving, but everyone's on their own journey and it's none of your business, right? Right. They're, on their own journey, figuring it, figuring it out their own way, right? And you just worry about yourself. And that's really important. And I think what's, what's hard about um, the conversation about psychedelics, and there's so much evidence now, and it is getting a little bit easier to find therapists and people who are able to help you with this. And there's lots of great ways the way you're explaining it to kind of explore it on your own. But I think there's a collective fear that I don't know, maybe there's some, if we're all afraid and we all just keep buying things and we all just keep thinking about ourselves, you know, we'll be good consumers. And the, I think part of the war on drugs in this aspect is is being afraid of what people learn and how much bigger everything is and how much freedom you actually have. And it doesn't have to be through this method. You can get here through meditation. You can get here through therapy. You can get here through walking on the beach in your bare feet. Like there's, there's many Childhood. paths, many yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Right. There are many ways to get there, but I think the more we understand that we really are one giant organism that needs to work together, the better. There's this idea of letting go of control and letting go of resistance because there's so much resistance in the world and there's so much of it and so much of it that I do. And I'm just so used to doing it. It's a habit to resist it rather than to open to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot that there's a lot that comes out of that that causes needless pain, needless problem. And it's just it's really a function of not knowing, you know, not practicing how to do that. And so whether you're doing it with 
psychedelics or whether you're doing it with therapy or whether you're doing it with a conversation, like Jennifer was saying, you know, am I resisting something? Well, you know, mm-hmm. what am I open to? These are the, these are the ideas. There's your mother mom, again. my mom again from beyond the grave. She's saying, I don't agree with what you're I'm saying. Resisting. Somehow you're resisting and it's affecting me and I'm not even there. But I'm very busy now. Yeah. It is important what you're saying, Ed, because it really is about, first of all, control. It was only an illusion. You never have control ever over anything. You only have control over your reactions to what goes on, right? You can't control conditions, only your reaction to them. And there's a certain amount of letting go of you can kind of look at everything that happens to you in your life as a lesson. And you don't have to be, you know, under the influence of anything to even feel that way. It's just when you, when you walk around in, in the place of a victim, this happened to me and this happened to me and this is terrible. That's a powerless, terrifying place to be. If you can switch that perspective to what can I learn? What's my lesson? You're going to feel better. You're going to be happier and you're going to have more power in your life. I, I tell you, I've never been high. I've never really been drunk. It's not a plan, although it used to be a preoccupation in college. People would try to get me high all the time. Ed, I'm the same. I'm the same. Yeah, what is that? I don't know what that is. See, I don't like the taste of alcohol. I don't like to feel out of control. I don't know. I guess, but I don't, I just don't like the taste. I mean, if I like the taste and I've tried, you know, I have all these friends and they're like, hey, I just take a C, I take a CBD, a chewable thing and lunch. And I'm just like calm and everything's good. And it's just works so well with me. Every time I try something, I have like the weirdest experience. Like it's, it either doesn't work, it doesn't affect me, or it affects me so much that I can't function. I've never had like a measured experience. And, and I just, I think that the, I respond to drugs very, in a very extreme way. I don't know why, but it's left me with, Like I've had people try to tell me, you know, why don't you try microdosing? Why don't you have this experience? And I'm like, I don't, I'm going to try to take my my pants off over my head. That's why. (laughs) Well, it's not for everybody. Everyone has their own journey. I love what Stuart said about the many paths to the peak, right? That may not be your journey. That may not be the way that you work that through and that's okay. Or it may be, but you have to work with somebody. You actually have to study and research and figure it out. Now, for people listening to this, that they're like, what the hell are we talking about? You know, it's just a tool that, that can be used. And I'm wondering if down in the future, it may be an actual, you know, it may be a real mental health tool. It may be as common as antidepressants. Yeah, I think we're already getting there. We are getting there. Yeah. I hope so, because I'm not why. I mean, I know antidepressants do very good things for people, but I think there's a ton of people on them, including myself where they're not sure what they're doing and it's not really affecting you. Because no drug or anything will be the answer. Like ultimately right. it takes you back to what, what the work that you need to do. And because you can use psychedelics and learn nothing. Not everybody takes those lessons and integrates them the way Stuart says. And sometimes you have to be, you have to be ready. It, sometimes your higher self will guide you and you have to be ready to take those lessons and actually apply them to your life and not get sucked back into where you started. Is that fair to say, Stuart? Yeah, that's totally fair to say. I do I do think, though, some of my opinions are, are uh, contrary to the, the main level of thought out there in the psychedelic communities. I do think that one can take, go through a psychedelic journey, get some lessons, and those lessons, even if they don't integrate them, can still be there and be ready to come out. When, at the right time, though, right? When... 
Yeah. And so sometimes you don't even realize what the lesson was. I've come out of ayahuasca ceremonies practically angry that I was like, I didn't get anything out of this. I did nothing. You know what I mean? I threw up into a bucket and I had some amazing visuals, but I didn't get anything out of this. And then later, and it can be years later, suddenly something comes up and you're like, wow, that actually came out of that ceremony. So I think sometimes it can help you even if you don't mean to. That could be true with anything, with conversations. You you can sometimes hear the same message from people and it just pisses you off. And then at one point of your life, you hear it. Well, now I've heard that from so many people and now I'm seeing it in this way and suddenly it integrates. I think something's different with psychedelics in my... So I went through years of therapy and then I have a therapist now, and which there's a funny story behind behind that. But with therapy, what Ed was talking about, you guys were talking about, is that resistance. Yeah. You know, when I'm sitting there and I am my stubborn self and I'm resistant, you know, maybe even at times combative, I'm like, you will mm-hmm. not help me. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I can do that. With psychedelics, it cracks open your container. Yeah, it melts the resistance. Mm. And I literally said this. I said, you know one experience can be like a year or two of therapy. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because it just it just cracks you wide open and you're like, "Oh my god." So my, you know, my psychiatrist was trying to get me to learn this point and and he was successful and my life is so much better because of it, but it took 2 years for him to crack open and crack through my stubbornness. Mm. Whereas the mm-hmm. mushrooms crack, there it is for me to look at and I was just like, "Oh wow. You know, that's something I really needed to learn." You know, when I, when I told this to my current therapist, she said, "Well, why are you, why are you doing therapy then? You know? And I said, well, cause there's so many tools, you know, so many paths up this mountain mm-hmm. and there's a lot of value in sitting here and, you know, and talking to you and going through this. The therapist can help you figure out some of those lessons too, and clarify some of that. Right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. A lot of stuff is going to come up from what you're saying. Things that you really, that this wasn't what you thought was there. Yeah. It could be a total surprise. You don't really, you know, it's fun to do is I like to do things alone, but it's also the ceremonial experiences, you know, primarily ayahuasca. It's really fun to get to the end of that. And the next morning, you know, because the night before everybody's a little apprehensive, everybody's super confident in their spirituality and, you know, and all this stuff. And then you go through this war and you come out of it on the other end and everybody, their eyes are wide open, their hair's all disheveled. You know what I mean? Their clothes are almost sideways and they're just like, what? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and so it's just so much fun to sit there. I don't, I don't think it's great for them to talk about the experience because I think they can overwrite some of the things that happened or their egos can start to wake up and go, well, I had an amazing experience. And that's, you know, they kind of overwrite what really happened. But to see these human beings come together and have their egos ripped open and, and all the experiences and the lessons that they learned is really an amazing experience. It really silences the critical mind, which is most of the time we're just in our own way, right? That's the truth. Yeah. And some people live their whole lives and never, ever get past that. And that's just hard, but that's everybody's journey. But there's a reason why these psychedelics have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. It's part of our human history. Oddly, I feel like grief and birth are two of the areas that force you to release, to let go, because you can't, you really can't control it at those moments. And that's when you're fully alive. You're fully alive when you're experiencing more than one feeling at the same time. You're fully alive when you're really, when it's going through you, as opposed, you can't, you know, there's a part, there's a time when you can't resist anymore. 
And those are usually the times that come up. I was there when my mom passed. I was with her, just me. And I saw her spirit leave her body. And I mm. saw the spirit. I felt the spirit that she was, which was infinitely bigger than the body that contained mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really who she was. The body wasn't working anymore. And it became very obvious. And the, so that's a landmark experience. I was lucky enough to, to, to be there with her. And then, and then grief is, you know, I, I mean, I just feel like not, a, I'm, I'm hoping that people don't have to go through those things, but what it does teach you is what, how much you're holding back and how alive you could be because, you know, being alive is having the feelings go through you and come out and not trying to figure them out. You don't have to figure it out. It's just meant to come out. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, now the funny story very quickly is my father was dying and I brought him to, he was living in an assisted living place. And this is the comedy of it. I brought him home and he was in that nether world where people are about to pass away, but they're not there yet. They're mm -hmm. not quite there, but he was, he was in and out of consciousness. He was in a wheelchair. And I brought, he said, I want to go to the concert. There was a concert in his uh, assisted living place. And I brought him to the concert. He's sitting there. His rabbi is next to him. I'm next to him. He's got a shawl on. He's in a, he's about to pat, you know, it's not long that he's going to be here. So he's out. He's unconscious. And the woman is sitting at a piano with all these senior citizens, like the cast of Cocoon. And she's playing a name that tune game with them. <laughs> and she plays a tune. And my father comes out of his, out of his netherworld and screams the words, I want to die. He screams that. And then he goes back to sleeping. Mm. The, the person at the piano, the woman playing the game says, good guess. It was, let me call you sweetheart. The theme from Dr. Javaga. <laughs> and I'm not making any, I'm not making a word of it up. Oh. And no one bats an eye when he screams, I want to die yeah. because everyone wants to in that place. <laughs> wow. So, so it's like, that is the craziness of yeah. <laughs> the mixture of the worlds. Right now you said, Stuart, that you, you do comedy about, I mean, there's comedy that's related to this. Is that, is that true? Yeah. You know, anybody who's doing, been doing comedy for a little bit, you know, you always struggle with trying to find your voice, find your purpose, you know, and I, I did that and I got to a point where, I was getting really tired of my stupid jokey jokes, you know, and I was just like, how many jokes can I tell about scorpions and cheeseburgers? And, you know, it's like everybody laughs, but it's like, it doesn't mean anything to me. I just started introducing bits and pieces of my psychedelic journeys, which was in, in the beginning was scary to me because I'm a business guy and I go to business meetings and networking groups. And those people come to my comedy shows and, and they like hearing jokes about scorpions and in and out burger. But I started <laughs> dropping you know, I went on a psychedelic trip and I went, I you know I did this. And I remember one show, two guys, one in a pressed white shirt, another guy in his business outfit, we were both sitting there. And I almost, I stopped and thought, should I not do this? And I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. And so I dropped those jokes. Both of them came up to me after the show. And one said, Hey, you know, great set like they always do. And they said, you know, let me tell you when, one time when we get together, let me tell you about my uh, mescaline story on the New York subway. <laughs> and I just laughed. I was like, oh, my God. And then the other guy walked up to me in his pressed white shirt. And he said, he says, yeah, you know, my wife and I, every now and then we like to sit at the pool and smoke a joint. And mm -hmm. it's just this is what the this is what is important, I think. And what I'm trying to do is when you talk about things, right, when I talk about 
psychedelics and I talk about mental health and you guys talk about mental health and we talk about suicide, then other people feel open to talk about it. So when I started to bring this out in my comedy, people would come up to me and they would talk. And I eventually grew this into a, a, a one man show, part like Ted talk, part comedy. And, I, and it's only got comedy in it too, because people are crying. Mm-hmm. And so I drop comedy to release the, the, the tension. It's like very, you know, therapy, just like let them go. Cause if I didn't, mm-hmm. it would just be torture. And so I, I do this show called the stone Dave show to do that. But you know, really the whole point is when we talk about this stuff, we break the stigmas down. And when we break the stigmas down, other people talk about it. And if they talk, then maybe they'll get help. And maybe if they get help, then they won't die. So that's been the the progression of my stand-up comedy and introducing this into it has just kind of grown into this this show, which went dormant for a year and a half. But luckily now I'm bringing it back up, bringing you it know, because I'm vaccinated. And if, if you guys aren't, that's your damn problem. And so <laughs> right, we'll... Right. Uh, well, and yeah. thank you for doing that because that the, the conversation is really important and people knowing they're not alone. So many people are struggling and in pain and suffering and... You know, most people spend time trying to escape it, but really it's all of these different ways and however you find the way to do it, it it's about healing, right? Mm-hmm. It's about feeling it and getting through it. So thank yeah. you for doing that. This is a hard conversation, but an important one. It really is. Very big gift that you give to people. Just tell me before we sign off here, two things. One is where are you now with your son's suicide? Where, where are you with it? And, uh, and then tell people where they can find you. I'm not sure where I am with it. What what I know, you said earlier, Ed, that we can have, you know, more, you live when you have more than one emotion. And, you know, my mother one time asked me, she said, can you, can you be happy? And I, then I told her, I was like, yeah, I can be happy. In fact, I'm always happy. I'm always happy. I'm always sad. I have all these emotions. They're mm-hmm. really always going, they just kind of bouncing mm-hmm. around like sound waves. Every now and then one of them gets plucked like a guitar string and gets really big. You know, like Jennifer said earlier, I call them landmines, but suddenly my grief can overwhelm me and mm-hmm. I can be in a point where I just need to sit and be with my grief. The, the answer is too big into where I am with my grief and with Ian, because I've, I've had a lot of insight into consciousness and into souls and to death. And I'm in a different spot right now than I was, you know, even a month ago. But what I'm learning is to just be here in my moment. And when, mm-hmm. I, when I'm like that, then I experience my grief and I dig around inside of it and I, and I experience my happiness and my joy and my, my lust and my love. All of it is just stuff I, I experience. So that's, that's where I am with it. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's an answer and I don't know, no, you know it maybe is. Where, where I really am, but that's, that's where I am. Awesome. You know, look in the show notes because we're going to offer some resources on suicide and maybe even on psilocybin and where you can find out more about these these things about mushrooms and other psychedelics but tell them where they can where they can find you i would say go to thegrieftrip.com because that'll actually take you to, to the page on my website my comedy website where the book is the book is actually available for free as a pdf download I just did that in case anybody out there is listening to this and they just want to hear a very or read a very raw story of loss and grief and how somebody dealt with it with psychedelics. You can download it for free because I want you to have it, but you can buy it on Amazon, you know, Kindle on Amazon regular. You can make a donation and I'll send you a copy. So that's really the best place. Then all my, all my social media handles are Stone Dave comedy. So Instagram and Facebook. Great. Well, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for your thank courage. You, and, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. I can't thank you enough either. Thank you for mm-hmm. everything you guys are doing. 
Pleasure to connect with you. I want to thank everybody. Thank you again, Jennifer. You are the high priestess of the hippocampus. There's no question about it. Thank you for doing this for us and for helping us, Always, as always. Go to connectedparenting.com. You can find out a lot more about Jennifer and her work and her organization that helps parents, helps, helps everyone. Uh, self-parenting skills, resilient skills, classes, media of all kinds. Find it at connectedparenting.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Write us and tell us what's working for you. Tell us how you're dealing with grief or how, or advice, you know, maybe there's some advice you have or a story or a question, something that we can help you with. And you can do that to ed at makelight, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, media.com. Ed at makelightmedia.com. Find all the podcasts at makelightmedia.com. Keep coming back at Works If You Work It. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We'll see you next week. <laughs>